Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, hello, wherever and whenever you are, and welcome to Stories of Your and Yours. My name is Sean Ennis, and this week we will spend some time with a ghost who isn't all that scary, and a living person who kind of is. And before we get started this week, I want to let you know, you may hear some birds in the background for the intro here. I usually record at night, but today I wasn't able to do that. So, you may hear birds in the background during the intro, but during the stories, you will not. Now, with that having been said, let's kick off this episode with the traditional iTunes review. Contemporary and Classic by the Carroll Sisters It's really nice to listen to a podcast that can have Poe in one episode and then a virtually unknown author in the next. Sean has a great voice. It's soothing, strong, and downright pleasant. The podcast isn't just about reading stories, but it also gives you a little background on the stories and authors as well. It's a must for any literary fiend out there. Thanks so much to the Carroll Sisters from the Dear Murder Street podcast for the kind words. And of course, you'll want to listen to their show if you haven't already. They were a podcast partner on the season premiere this season. It is, of course, a great help and show of support to leave a review on iTunes. And I thank all of those who have left a review to this point. If you're enjoying the show, the best thing you can do is to spread the word by whatever method you prefer. Liking, sharing, retweeting, recommending, reviewing, the old standby word of mouth. And of course, if you're inclined to become a patron over on Patreon you'll be eligible for some bonus content there as well. Speaking of which, I've recorded a couple of stories this season that haven't fit into the episodes where I originally planned them. One of those stories is available right now to the patrons, and another will be there in a couple of weeks. So if you're looking for some extra in-season content, head over to patreon.com syypodcast or bit.ly supportsyy. You can also get in touch with the show on social media, whether that's on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, at SYYpodcast. You can contact me through any of those methods or through SYYpodcast at gmail.com with requests or your own original short story. I enjoy talking with everyone, so don't be shy. Now before we get into this week's stories, I want to introduce you to a comedy podcast that I've really been enjoying. It's called The Tennis Podcast, and here are Nick and Brandon to tell you more about it. Hi, my name is Nick. I'm Brandon. We are the hosts of the Tennis Podcast, where every week we cover a different top tennis list. We cover lists such as the highest grossing films of all time, the best selling musicians of all time, the the sexiest mogwais, the richest leprechauns, the all this and more we cover on the Tennis Podcast. I had more. You can find us on all podcast players, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Stitcher. All you got to do is search for 10ISH podcast. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TennisPod. Thanks. Bye. Thank you, Nick and Brandon. And again, I recommend Tennis if you like to laugh. The show is hilarious. Now, this week, for the first time in a while, we've got two short stories featured by one author. And that author is one H.G. Wells. So let's talk about Mr. Wells. Herbert George Wells was born in September of 1866 in Kent, England. Wells often experienced poor health in his early years, and his parents feared that he might die young as his older sister had. He would have sporadic health issues for most of his life, but actually lived until 1946, a month before his 80th birthday. Wells didn't have much in the way of formal education, but was, unsurprisingly, an avid reader, making his way through works by authors like Charles Dickens, Jonathan Swift, and Washington Irving as a young man. He worked as an assistant to a draper, which is a cloth manufacturer, and as an assistant to a chemist, 
before receiving a scholarship at 18 years of age to the Normal School of Science. Not the abnormal school, of course, that's just ridiculous. He graduated five years later in 1888 and became a science teacher. His first published work was actually a textbook published in 1893 called, wait for it, Textbook of Biology. Which I guess is a fitting name for a graduate of the Normal School of Science. Anyway, two years later, in 1895, Wells would publish his first novel, which is actually one of his most well-known works, The Time Machine. The novel was an instant success, and he quickly published several more novels. The Wonderful Visit, also in 1895, The Island of Dr. Moreau in 1896, The Invisible Man in 1897, and The War of the Worlds in 1898. Of course, if you listened to the tease at the end of last week's episode, you may have figured out that The War of the Worlds was the work I was referring to. That is the novel that was adapted into a radio drama by Orson Welles, no relation, in 1938, which is a whole other story unto itself. Wells would ultimately publish almost 60 novels, over 70 works of nonfiction, including his views on politics, science, and the state of the world, and close to 90 short stories. He's widely considered to be the father of the science fiction genre, though he certainly didn't limit himself to science fiction, which we will see today. I've actually been wanting to do an episode on a Wells story or two since about halfway through season one, but I couldn't find the right material for it. Ultimately, I decided to go with a couple of his lesser-known works. I think we'll get to some of his pure sci-fi down the road, but for now, I felt like these two stories were a good jumping-off point. I will say, though, if you have a favorite Wells story, you can always submit a request like we talk about each week here. All that aside, though, let's talk about this week's stories. We're going to start with The Inexperienced Ghost, which was published in 1902 in The Strand magazine. We've talked about The Strand before, of course, including last week's episode, but for a full history of the publication, you'll want to check out episode 10 of season 1, which featured the Sherlock Holmes story, The Adventure of the Speckled Band. Speaking of last week's show, if you listened to the stories by Agatha Christie and Arthur Conan Doyle, you know I cheated a bit with the accents. That's the case here this week as well. You'll notice in The Inexperienced Ghost, it features a narrator with my accent, while all the other characters have British accents. Because again, I'm allowed to cheat on my own show. This week's second story, The Magic Shop, was published in 1903 in Wells' short story collection entitled Twelve Stories and a Dream. I'll have a few more notes after today's presentation about this particular story, but for now, let's talk about one of the words that Wells uses in both stories. You'll notice that in both stories, the word rum is used as an adjective, which is something I wasn't familiar with. But apparently rum, in this sense, means odd or unusual. So keep that in mind. And now, with no further ado, please enjoy... H.G. Wells. The Inexperienced Ghost by H.G. Wells. The scene amidst which Clayton told his last story comes back very vividly to my mind. There he sat, for the greater part of the time, in the corner of the authentic settle by the spacious open fire, and Sanderson sat beside him, smoking the Brosley clay that bore his name. There was Evans, and that marvel among actors, Wish, who was also a modest man. We had all come down to the Mermaid Club that Saturday morning, except Clayton, who had slept there overnight, which indeed gave him the opening of his story. We had golfed until golfing was invisible. We had dined, and we were in that mood of tranquil kindliness when men will suffer a story. When Clayton began to tell one, we naturally supposed that he was lying. It may be that indeed he was lying. Of that the reader will speedily be able to judge as well as I. He began, it is true, with an air of matter-of-fact anecdote, but that, we thought, was only the incurable artifice of the man. 
I say, he remarked after a long consideration of the upward rain of sparks from the log that Sanderson had thumped. You know, I was alone here last night. Except for the domestics, said Wish, who sleep in the other wing, said Clayton. Yes, well, he pulled at his cigar for some time as though he still hesitated about his confidence. Then he said, quite quietly, I caught a ghost. Caught a ghost, did you? said Sanderson. Where is it? And Evans, who admires Clayton immensely and who has been four weeks in America, shouted, Caught a ghost, did you, Clayton? I'm glad of it. Tell us about it right now. Clayton said he would in a minute and asked him to shut the door. He looked apologetically to me. There's no eavesdropping, of course, but we don't want to upset our very excellent service with any rumors of ghosts in the place. There's too much shadow and oak paneling to trifle with that. And this, you know, wasn't a regular ghost. I don't think it will come again. Ever. You mean to say you didn't keep it? said Sanderson. I hadn't the heart to, said Clayton. And Sanderson said he was surprised. We laughed, and Clayton looked aggrieved. I know, he said with a flicker of a smile. But the fact is, it really was a ghost. And I'm as sure of it as I am that I am talking to you now. I'm not joking. I mean what I say. Sanderson drew deeply at his pipe, with one reddish eye on Clayton, and then emitted a thin jet of smoke, more eloquent than many words. Clayton ignored the comment. It is the strangest thing that has ever happened in my life. You know, I never believed in ghosts or anything of the sort before, ever. And then, you know, I bag one in the corner, and, and the whole business is in my hands. He meditated still more profoundly and produced and began to pierce a second cigar with a curious little stabber he affected. You talked to it, said Wish, for the space of probably an hour. Chatty, I said, joining the party of skeptics. The poor devil was in trouble, said Clayton, bowed over his cigar end with the very faintest note of reproof. Sobbing? someone asked. Clayton heaved a realistic sigh at the memory. Good Lord, he said. Yes. And then, poor fellow, yes. Where did you strike it? said Evans in his best American accent. I never realized, said Clayton, ignoring him, the poor sort of thing a ghost might be. And he hung us up again for a time while he sought for matches in his pocket and lit and warmed to his cigar. I took an advantage, he reflected at last. We were none of us in a hurry. A character, he said, remains just the same character for all that it's been disembodied. That's a thing we too often forget. People with a certain strength or fixity of purpose may have ghosts of a certain strength and fixity of purpose. Most haunting ghosts, you know, must be as one-ideaed as monomaniacs and obstinate as mules to come back again and again. This poor creature wasn't. He suddenly looked up rather queerly, and his eye went around the room. "'I say it,' he said, "'in all kindliness, but that is the plain truth of the case. Even at the first glance he struck me as weak.' He punctuated with the help of his cigar. "'I came upon him, you know, in the long passage. His back was towards me, and I saw him first. Right off I knew him for a ghost. He was transparent and whitish.' Clean through his chest I could see the glimmer of the little window at the end. 
and not only his physique, but his attitude struck me as being weak. He looked, you know, as though he didn't know in the slightest whatever he meant to do. One hand was on the panelling, and the other fluttered to his mouth, like, so. What sort of physique? said Sanderson. Lean. You know that sort of young man's neck that has two great flutings down the back, here and here, so, and a little meanish head with scrubby hair, and rather bad ears. Shoulders bad, narrower than the hips, turned-down collar, ready-made short jacket, trousers baggy, and a little frayed at the heels. That's how he took me. I came very quietly up the staircase. I did not carry a light, you know. The candles are on the landing-table, and there is that lamp, and I was in my list slippers, and I saw him as I came up. I stopped dead at that, taking him in. I wasn't a bit afraid. I think that in most of these affairs one is never nearly so afraid or excited as one imagines one would be. I was surprised and interested. I thought, good Lord, here's a ghost at last, and I haven't believed for a moment in ghosts during the last five and twenty years. Hmm, said Wish. I suppose I wasn't on the landing a moment before he found out I was there. He turned on me sharply, and I saw the face of an immature young man, a weak nose, a scrubby little moustache, a feeble chin. So for an instant we stood, he looking over his shoulder at me, and we regarded one another. Then he seemed to remember his high calling. He turned round, drew himself up, projected his face, raised his arms, spread his hands in approved ghost fashion, came towards me. As he did so, his little jaw dropped, and he emitted a faint, drawn-out boo. No, it wasn't. Not a bit dreadful. I'd dined. I'd had a bottle of champagne. And, being all alone, perhaps two or three, perhaps even four or five whiskies, so I was solid as rocks, and no more frightened than if I had been assailed by a frog. Boo, I said. Nonsense. You don't belong to this place. What are you doing here? I could see him wince. Boo, he said. Boo, be hanged. Are you a member? I said. And just to show I didn't care a pin for him, I stepped through a corner of him and made to light my candle. Are you a member? I repeated, looking at him sideways. He moved a little so as to stand clear of me, and his bearing became crestfallen. No, he said, in answer to the persistent interrogation of my eye. I'm not a member. I'm a ghost. Well... That doesn't give you the run of the mermaid club. Is there anyone you want to see, or anything of that sort? And doing it as steadily as possible for fear that he should mistake the carelessness of whiskey for the distraction of fear, I got my candle alight. I turned on him, holding it. What are you doing here? I said. He had dropped his hands and stopped his booing, and there he stood, abashed and awkward, the ghost of a weak, silly, aimless young man. I'm haunting, he said. "'You haven't any business to,' I said in a quiet voice. "'I'm a ghost,' he said, as if in defence. "'That may be, but you haven't any business to haunt here. "'This is a respectable private club. "'People often stop here with nursemaids and children, "'and going about in the careless way you do, "'some poor little mite could easily come upon you "'and be scared out of her wits. "'I suppose you didn't think of that?' "'No, sir,' he said, "'I didn't. "'You should have done. "'You haven't any claim on the place, have you?' "'Weren't murdered here, or anything of that sort?' "'None, sir, but I thought, as it was old and oak-panelled—' "'That's no excuse,' I regarded him firmly. 
Your coming here is a mistake, I said in a tone of friendly superiority. I feigned to see if I had my matches, and then looked up at him frankly. If I were you, I wouldn't wait for cockcrow, I'd varnish right away. He looked embarrassed. The fact is, sir, he began. I'd varnish, I said, driving it home. The fact is, sir, that somehow I can't. You can't? No, sir, there's something I've forgotten. I've been hanging about here since midnight last night, hiding in the cupboards of the empty bedrooms and things like that. I'm flurried. I've never come haunting before, and it seems to put me out. Put you out? Yes, sir, I've tried to do it several times, and it doesn't come off. There's some little thing has slipped me, and I can't get back. That, you know, rather bowled me over. He looked at me in such an abject way that... For the life of me, I couldn't keep up quite the high, hectoring vein I had adopted. That's queer, I said, and as I spoke, I fancied I heard someone moving about down below. Come into my room and tell me more about it, I said. I didn't, of course, understand this, and I tried to take him by the arm, but of course you know you might as well have tried to take hold of a puff of smoke. I had forgotten my number, I think, anyhow. I remember going into several bedrooms— it was lucky I was the only soul in that wing, until I saw my traps. Here we are, I said, and sat down in an armchair. Sit down and tell me all about it. It seems to me you have got yourself in a jolly awkward position, old chap. Well, he said he wouldn't sit down. He'd prefer to flit up and down the room if it was all the same to me. And so he did. And in a little while we were deep in a long and serious talk. And presently, you know, something of these whiskies and sodas evaporated out of me, and I began to realize, just a little, what a thundering rum and weird business it was that I was in. There he was, semi-transparent, the proper conventional phantom, and noiseless, except for his ghost of a voice, flitting to and fro in that nice, clean, chintz-hung old bedroom. You could see the gleam of the copper candlesticks through him, and the lights on the brass fender, and the corners of the framed engravings on the wall. And there he was, telling me all about this wretched little life of his that had recently ended on earth. He hadn't a particularly honest face, you know, but being transparent, of course, he couldn't avoid telling the truth. "'Eh?' said Wish, suddenly sitting up on a chair. "'What?' said Clayton. "'Being transparent, couldn't avoid telling the truth?' "'I don't see it,' said Wish. "'I don't see it,' said Clayton, with inimitable assurance. "'But it is so, I can assure you, nevertheless. "'I don't believe he got once a nail's breadth of the Bible truth. "'He told me how he had been killed. "'He went down into a London basement with a candle to look for the leakage of gas, "'and described himself as a senior English master in a London private school "'when that release occurred.' "'Poor wretch,' said I. "'That's what I thought, and the more he talked about it, the more I thought it. "'There he was, purposeless in life and purposeless out of it. "'He talked of his father and mother and his schoolmaster "'and all who had ever been anything to him in the world meanly. "'He had been too sensitive, too nervous. "'None of them had ever valued him properly or understood him,' he said. "'He had never had a real friend in the world, I think. "'He had never had a success.' He had shirked games and failed examinations. It's like that with some people, he said. Whenever I got to the examination room or anywhere, everything seemed to go. Engaged to be married, of course, to another over-sensitive person, I suppose, 
when the indiscretion with the gas escape ended his affairs. And where are you now? I asked. Not in... He wasn't clear on that point at all. The impression he gave me was of a sort of vague, intermediate state, a special reserve for souls too non-existent for anything so positive as either sin or virtue. I don't know, he was much too egotistical and unobservant to give me any clear idea of a place, kind of country that is on the other side of things. Wherever he was, he seems to have fallen in with a set of kindred spirits, ghosts of weak cockney young men who were on a footing of Christian names. And among these there was certainly a lot of talk of going haunting and things like that. Yes, going haunting. They seemed to think haunting a tremendous adventure, and most of them funked it all the time. And so primed, you know, he had come. But really, said Wish to the fire, these are the impressions he gave me, anyhow, said Clayton, modestly. I may, of course, have been in a rather uncritical state, but that was the sort of background he gave to himself. He kept flitting up and down, with his thin voice going, talking, talking about his wretched self, and never a word of clear, firm statement from first to last. He was thinner and sillier, and more pointless than if he had been real and alive. Only then, you know, he would not have been in my bedroom here, if he had been alive. I should have kicked him out. (laughs) Of course, said Evans, there are poor mortals like that. And there's just as much chance of their having ghosts as the rest of us, I admitted. What gave a sort of point to him, you know, was the fact that he did seem within limits to have found himself out. The mess he had made of haunting had depressed him terribly. He had been told it would be a lark. He had come expecting it to be a lark, and here it was, nothing but another failure added to his record. He proclaimed himself an utter out-and-out failure. He said, and I can quite believe it, that he had never tried to do anything all his life that he hadn't made a perfect mess of, and through all wastes of eternity he never would. If he had had sympathy, perhaps, he paused at that and stood regarding me, he remarked that, strange as it might seem to me, nobody, not anyone ever, had given him the amount of sympathy I was doing now. I could see what he wanted straight away, and I determined to hit him off at once. I may be a brute, you know, But being the only real friend, the recipient of the confidences of one of these egotistical weaklings, ghost or body, is beyond my physical endurance. I got up briskly. Don't you brood on these things too much, I said. The thing you've got to do is get out of this, uh, get out of this, sharp. You pull yourself together and try. I can't, he said. You try, I said. And try he did. Try, said Sanderson. How? Passes, said Clayton. Passes. Complicated series of gestures and passes with the hands. That's how he had come in, and that's how he had to get out again. Lord, what a business I had. But how could any series of passes, I began. My dear man, said Clayton, turning on me and putting a great emphasis on certain words. You want everything clear. I don't know how. All I know is that you do, that he did, anyhow, at least. After a fearful time, you know, he got his passes right and suddenly disappeared. Did you, said Sanderson slowly, observe the passes? Yes, said Clayton, and seemed to think. It was tremendously queer, he said. 
And there we were, I and this thin, vague ghost, in that silent room, in this silent, empty inn, in this silent little Friday night town. Not a sound, except our voices, and a faint panting he made when he swung. There was the bedroom candle, and one candle on the dressing-table alight. That was all. Sometimes one or the other would flare up into a tall, lean, astonished flame for a space, and queer things happened. "'I can't,' he said. "'I shall never—' And suddenly he sat down in a chair at the foot of the bed, and began to sob and sob. Lord, what a harrowing, whimpering thing he seemed. "'You pull yourself together,' I said, and tried to pat him on the back, and my confounded hand went through him. By that time, you know, I wasn't nearly so massive as I had been on the landing. I got the queerness of it full. I remember snatching back my hand out of him, as it were, with a little thrill, and walking over to the dressing-table. "'You pull yourself together,' I said to him, and try. And, in order to encourage and help him, I began to try as well. "'What?' said Sanderson. "'The passes.' "'Yes, the passes.' "'But—' I said, moved by an idea that eluded me for a space. "'This is interesting,' said Sanderson, with his finger in his pipe bowl. "'You mean to say that this ghost of yours gave away—did his level best to give away the whole confounded barrier?' "'Yes.' "'He didn't,' said Wish. "'He couldn't, or else you'd have gone there, too.' "'That's precisely it,' I said, finding my elusive idea put into words for me. "'That is precisely it,' said Clayton, with thoughtful eyes upon the fire. For just a little while there was silence. "'And at last he did it?' said Sanderson. "'At last he did it. I had to keep him up to it hard, but he did it at last, rather suddenly. He despaired, we had a scene, and then he got up abruptly and asked me to go through the whole performance, slowly, so that he might see. "'I believe,' he said, if I could see, then I should spot what was wrong at once. And he did. I know, he said. What do you know? said I. I know, he repeated. Then he said peevishly, I can't do it if you look at me. I really can't. It's been that partly all along. I'm such a nervous fellow that you put me out. Well, we had a bit of an argument. Naturally, I wanted to see, but he was as obstinate as a mule. And suddenly I had come over as tired as a dog. He tired me out. All right, I said, I won't look at you, and turned towards the mirror on the wardrobe by the bed. He started off very fast. I tried to follow him by looking in the looking-glass to see just what it was had hung up. Round went his arms and his hands, so and so and so, and then, with a rush, came to that last gesture of all. You stand erect and open your arms, and so, don't you know, he stood. And then he didn't. He didn't. He wasn't. I wheeled round from the looking-glass to him. There was nothing. I was alone, with the flaring candles and the staggering mind. What had happened? Had anything happened? Had I been dreaming? And then, with an absurd note of finality about it, the clock upon the landing discovered the moment was ripe for striking one. So, ping. And I was as grave and sober as a judge, with all my champagne and whiskey gone into the vast serene. Feeling queer, you know, confoundedly queer. Queer. Good Lord. He regarded his cigar ash for a moment. 
That's all that happened, he said. And then you went to bed, asked Evans. What else was there to do? I looked Wish in the eye. We wanted to scoff, and there was something, something perhaps in Clayton's voice and manner that hampered our desire. And about these passes, said Sanderson, I believe I could do them now. Oh, said Sanderson, and produced a penknife and set himself to grub the dottle out of the bowl of his clay. Why don't you do them now, said Sanderson, shutting his penknife with a click. That is what I'm going to do, said Clayton. They won't work, said Evans. If they do, I suggested. You know, I'd rather you didn't, said Wish, stretching out his legs. Why, said Evans. I'd rather he didn't, said Wish. But he hasn't got them right, said Sanderson, plugging too much tobacco in his pipe. I'd rather he didn't, said Wish. We argued with Wish. He said that for Clayton to go through those gestures was like mocking a serious matter. But you don't believe, I said. Wish glanced at Clayton, who was staring into the fire, weighing something in his mind. I do. More than half, anyhow, I do. Clayton, said I, you're too good a liar for us. Most of it was all right, but then the disappearance happened to be convincing. Tell us it's a tale of cock and bull. He stood up without heeding me, took the middle of the hearthrug, and faced me. For a moment he regarded his feet thoughtfully, and then for all the rest of the time his eyes were on the opposite wall, with an intent expression. He raised two hands slowly to the level of his eyes and so began. Now, Sanderson is a Freemason, a member of the Lodge of the Four Kings, which devotes itself so ably to the study and elucidation of all the mysteries of masonry past and present, and among the students of his lodge, Sanderson is by no means the least. He followed Clayton's motions with a singular interest in his reddish eye. That's not bad, he said when it was done. You really do, you know, put things together, Clayton, in a most amazing fashion. But there's one little detail out. I know, said Clayton. I believe I could tell you which. Well? This, said Clayton, and did a queer little twist and writhing and thrust of the hands. Yes. That, you know, was what he couldn't get right, said Clayton. But how do you... Most of this business, and particularly how you invented it, I don't understand at all, said Sanderson. But... Just that phase, I do, he reflected. These happen to be a series of gestures, connected with a certain branch of esoteric masonry. Probably you know. Or else how, he reflected still further. I do not see I can do any harm in telling you just the proper twist. After all, if you know, you know. If you don't, you don't. I know nothing, said Clayton except what that poor devil let out last night. Well, anyhow, said Sanderson, and placed his churchwarden very carefully upon the shelf over the fireplace. Then, very rapidly, he gesticulated with his hands. So? said Clayton, repeating. So, said Sanderson, and took his pipe in hand again. Ah, now, said Clayton, I can do the whole thing, right. He stood up before the waning fire and smiled at us all but I think there was just a little hesitation in his smile. "'If I begin,' he said. "'I wouldn't begin,' said Wish. "'It's all right,' said Evans. 
Matter is indestructible. You don't think any jiggery-pokery of this sort is going to snatch Clayton into the world of shades? Not it. You may try, Clayton, so far as I'm concerned, until your arms drop off at the wrists. I don't believe that, said Wish, and stood up and put his arm on Clayton's shoulder. You've made me half believe the story somehow, and I don't want to see the thing done. Goodness, said I. Here's Wish frightened. I am, said Wish, with real or admirably feigned intensity. I believe that if he goes through these motions right, he'll go. He'll not do anything of the sort, I cried. There's only one way out of this world for men, and Clayton is thirty years from that. Besides, and such a ghost. Do you think... Wish interrupted me by moving. He walked out from among our chairs and stopped beside the toll and stood there. Clayton, he said, you're a fool. Clayton, with a humorous light in his eyes, smiled back at him. Wish, he said, is right, and all you others are wrong. I shall go. I shall get to the end of these passes, and as the last swish whistles through the hour, presto, this hearthrug will be vacant, the room will be blank amazement, and a respectably dressed gentleman of fifteen stone will plump into the world of shades. I'm certain. So will you be. I decline to argue further. Let the thing be tried. No, said Wish, and made a step and ceased, and Clayton raised his hands once more to repeat the spirit's passing. By that time, you know, we were all in a state of tension, largely because of the behavior of Wish. We sat, all of us, with our eyes on Clayton, I at least with a sort of tight, stiff feeling about me as though from the back of my skull to the middle of my thighs my body had been changed to steel. And there, with a gravity that was imperturbably serene, Clayton bowed and swayed and waved his hands and arms before us. As he drew towards the end, one piled up, one tingled in one's teeth. The last gesture, I have said, was to swing the arms out wide open with the face held up. And when at last he swung out to the closing gesture, I ceased to even breathe. It was ridiculous, of course, but you know that ghost story feeling. It was after dinner in a queer, old, shadowy house. Would he, after all... There he stood, for one stupendous moment, with his arms open and his upturned face, assured and bright, in the glare of the hanging lamp. We hung through that moment as if it were an age, and then came from all of us something that was half a sigh of infinite relief and half a reassuring no, for visibly he wasn't going. It was all nonsense. He had told an idle story and carried it almost to conviction. That was all. And then, in that moment, the face of Clayton changed. It changed. It changed as a lit house changes when the lights are suddenly extinguished. His eyes were suddenly eyes that were fixed. His smile was frozen on his lips, and he stood there, still. He stood there, very gently, swaying. That moment, too, was an age. And then, you know, chairs were scraping, things were falling, and we were all moving. His knees seemed to give, and he fell forward, and Evans rose and caught him in his arms. It stunned us all. For a moment, I suppose, no one said a coherent thing. We believed it, yet could not believe it. I came out of a muddled stupefaction to find myself kneeling beside him, and his vest and shirt were torn open, and Sanderson's hand lay on his heart. Well, the simple fact before us could very well wait our convenience. There was no hurry for us to comprehend. It lay there for an hour. It lies athwart my memory, black and amazing still to this day. 
Clayton had indeed passed into the world that lies so near to and so far from our own, and he had gone thither by the only road that mortal man may take. But whether he did indeed pass there by that poor ghost's incantation, or whether he was stricken suddenly by apoplexy in the midst of an idle tale, as the coroner's jury would have us believe, is no matter for my judging. It is just one of those inexplicable riddles that must remain unsolved until the final solution of all things shall come. All I certainly know is that in the very moment, in the very instant of concluding those passes, he changed and staggered and fell down before us, dead. seen the magic shop from afar several times. I had passed it once or twice, a shop window of alluring little objects, magic balls, magic hens, wonderful cones, ventriloquist dolls, the material of the basket trick, packs of cards that looked all right, and all that sort of thing, but never had I thought of going in until one day, almost without warning, Gip hauled me by my finger right up to the window, and so conducted himself that there was nothing for it but to take him in. I had not thought that the place was there, to tell the truth. A modest-sized frontage in Regent Street between the picture shop and the place where the chicks run about just out of the patent incubators, but there it was, sure enough. I had fancied it was down near the circus, or around the corner in Oxford Street, or even in Holborn, always over the way and a little inaccessible it had been, with something of the mirage in its position. But here it was now, quite indisputably and the fat end of Gip's pointing finger made a noise upon the glass. "'If I was rich,' said Gip, dabbing a finger at the disappearing egg, "'I'd buy myself that, and that,' which was the crying baby, very human, "'and that,' which was a mystery, and called, so a neat card asserted, "'by one and astonish your friends.' "'Anything,' said Gip, "'will disappear under one of those cones. I, "'I've read about it in a book. "'And there, Dada, is the vanishing halfpenny,' Only they put it this way up so we can't see how it's done. Gip, dear boy, inherits his mother's breeding, and he did not propose to enter the shop or worry in any way, only, you know, quite unconsciously. He lugged my finger doorward, and he made his interest clear. That, he said, and pointed to the magic bottle. If you had that, I said, at which promising inquiry he looked up with a sudden radiance. I could show it to Jesse, he said thoughtful as ever of others. "'It's less than a hundred days to your birthday, Gibbles,' I said, and laid my hand on the door handle. Gip made no answer, but his grip tightened on my finger, and so we came into the shop. It was no common shop, this. It was a magic shop, and all the prancing precedence Gip would have taken in the matter of mere toys was wanting. He left the burden of the conversation to me. It was a little narrow shop, not very well lit." and the doorbell pinged again with a plaintive note as we closed it behind us. For a moment or so we were alone and could glance about us. There was a tiger and papier-mâché on the glass case that covered the low counter, a grave, kind-eyed tiger that waggled his head in a methodical manner. There were several crystal spheres, a china hand holding magic cards, a stock of magic fish bowls in various sizes, 
and an immodest magic hat that shamelessly displayed its springs. On the floor were magic mirrors, one to draw you out long and thin, one to swell your head and vanish your legs, and one to make you short and fat like a draft. And while we were laughing at these, the shopman, as I suppose, came in. At any rate, there he was behind the counter, a curious, sallow, dark man, with one ear larger than the other and a chin like the toe cap of a boot. What can we have the pleasure, he said, spreading his long magic fingers on the glass case, and so at the start we were aware of him. I want, I said, to buy my little boy a few simple tricks. Leisure de main, he asked. Mechanical. Domestic? Anything amusing, said I. Hmm, said the shopman, and scratched his head for a moment as if thinking. Then, quite distinctly, he drew from his head a glass ball. Something in this way, he said, and held it out. The action was unexpected. I had seen the trick done at entertainments endless times before. It's part of the common stock of conjurers, but I had not expected it here. That's good, I said with a laugh. Isn't it? said the shopman. Gip stretched out his disengaged hand to take the object and found merely a blank palm. It's in your pocket, said the shopman, and there it was. How much will that be? I asked. We make no charge for glass balls, said the shopman politely. We get them. He picked one out of his elbow as he spoke. Free. He produced another from the back of his neck and laid it beside its predecessor on the counter. Gip regarded this glass ball sagely, then directed a look of inquiry at the two on the counter, and finally brought his round-eyed scrutiny to the shopman, who smiled. "'You may have those two, said the shopman. "'And, if you don't mind, one from my mouth.' "'So!' Gip counseled me mutely for a moment, and then in a profound silence put away the four balls, resumed my reassuring finger, and nerved himself for the next big event. We get all our smaller tricks in that way, the shopman remarked. I laughed in the manner of one who subscribes to a jest. Instead of going to the wholesale shop, I said, of course it's cheaper. In a way, the shopman said, though we pay in the end. But not so heavily as people suppose. Our larger tricks and our daily provisions and all the other things we want we get out of that hat. And you know, sir, if you'll excuse my saying it, there isn't a wholesale shop. Not for genuine magic goods, sir. I don't know if you noticed our inscription, the genuine magic shop. He drew a business card from his cheek and handed it to me. Genuine, he said, with his finger on the word, and added, There is absolutely no deception, sir. He seemed to be carrying out the joke pretty thoroughly, I thought. He turned to Gip with a smile of remarkable affability. You, you know, are the right sort of boy. I was surprised at his knowing that, because in the interests of discipline we keep it rather a secret at home. But Gip received it in unflinching silence, keeping a steadfast eye on him. It's only the right sort of boy gets through that doorway. And as if by way of illustration, there came a rattling at the door, and a squeaking little voice could be faintly heard. Yeah, I want to go in there, Dad. I want to go in there. Yeah. And then the accents of a downtrodden parent, urging consolations and propitiations. 
It's locked, Edward, he said. But it isn't, said I. It is, sir, said the shopman. Always for that sort of child. And as he spoke, we had a glimpse of the other youngster, a little white face pallid from sweet-eating and over-sipid food, and distorted by evil passions, a ruthless little egotist pawing at the enchanted pane. It's no good, sir, said the shopman, as I moved with my natural helpfulness doorward, and presently the spoiled child was carried off howling. How do you manage that? I said, breathing a little more freely. Magic, said the shopman, with a careless wave of the hand, and behold, sparks of colored fire flew out of his fingers and vanished into the shadows of the shop. You were saying, he said, addressing himself to Gip, before you came in, that you would like one of our Buy One and Astonish Your Friends boxes. Gip, after a gallant effort, said, Yes. It's in your pocket. And leaning over the counter, he really had an extraordinarily long body, this amazing person produced the article in the customary conjurer's manner. Paper, he said, and took a sheet out of the empty hat with springs. String. And behold, his mouth was a string box from which he drew an unending thread, which when he had tied his parcel he bit off, and it seemed to me swallowed the ball of string. And then he lit a candle at the nose of one of the ventriloquist dummies, stuck one of his fingers, which had become sealing wax red, into the flame, and so sealed the parcel. Then there was the disappearing egg, he remarked, and produced one from within my coat breast and packed it, and also the crying baby, very human. I handed each parcel to Gip as it was ready, and he clasped them to his chest. He said very little, but his eyes were eloquent. The clutch of his arms was eloquent. He was the playground of unspeakable emotions. These, you know were real magics. Then with a start I discovered something moving about in my hat, something soft and jumpy. I whipped it off, and a ruffled pigeon, no doubt a confederate, dropped out and ran on the counter, and went, fancy, into a cardboard box behind the papier-mâché tiger. Tut-tut, said the shopman, dexterously relieving me of my headdress. Careless bird. And, as I live, <laughs> nesting. He shook my hat, and shook out into his extended hand two or three eggs, a large marble, a watch, about half a dozen of the inevitable glass balls, and then crumpled, wrinkled paper, more and more and more, talking all the time of the way in which people neglect to brush their hats inside as well as out, politely, of course, but with a certain personal application. All sorts of things accumulate, sir. Not you, of course, in particular. Nearly every customer. Astonishing what they carry about with them. The crumpled paper rose and billowed on the counter more and more and more, until he was nearly hidden from us, until he was altogether hidden. And still his voice went on and on and on. We none of us know what the fair semblance of a human being may conceal, sir. Are we then no better than the brushed exteriors, whited sepulchres? His voice stopped, exactly like when you hit a neighbor's gramophone with a well-aimed brick, the same instant silence, and the rustle of the paper stopped, and everything was still. Have you done with my hat? I said after an interval. There was no answer. I stared at Gip, and Gip stared at me, and there were our distortions in the magic mirrors, looking very rum and grave and quiet. I think we'll go now, I said. 
will you tell me how much all this comes to? I say, I said on a rather louder note, I want the bill and my hat, please. It might have been a sniff from behind the paper pile. Let's look behind the counter, Gip, I said. He's making fun of us. I led Gip round the head-wagging tiger, and what do you think there was behind the counter? No one at all. Only my hat, on the floor, and a common conjurer's lop-eared white rabbit lost in meditation, and looking as stupid and crumpled as only a conjurer's rabbit can do. I resumed my hat, and the rabbit lolloped a lollop or so out of my way. Dada, said Gip in a guilty whisper. What is it, Gip? said I. I do like this shop, Dada. So should I, I said to myself, if the counter wouldn't suddenly extend itself to shut off one from the door. But I didn't call Gip's attention to that. Bunny, he said, with a hand out to the rabbit as it came lolloping past us. Bunny, do Gip a magic. And his eyes followed it as it squeezed through a door I had certainly not remarked a moment before. Then this door opened wider, and the man with one ear larger than the other appeared again. He was smiling still, but his eye met mine with something between amusement and defiance. You'd like to see our showroom, sir, he said with innocent suavity. Gip tugged my finger forward. I glanced at the counter and met the shopman's eye again. I was beginning to think the magic just a little too genuine. We haven't very much time, I said, but somehow we were inside the showroom before I could finish that. All goods of the same quality, said the shopman, rubbing his flexible hands together. And that is the best. Nothing in the place that isn't genuine magic, and warranted thoroughly rum. Excuse me, sir. I felt him pull at something that clung to my coat sleeve, and then I saw he held a little wriggling red demon by the tail. The little creature bit and fought and tried to get his hand, and in a moment he tossed it carelessly behind a counter. Uh, no doubt the thing was only an image of twisted India rubber, but for the moment. And his gesture was exactly that of a man who handles some petty, biting bit of vermin. I glanced at Gip, but Gip was looking at a magic rocking horse. I was glad he hadn't seen the thing. I say, I said in an undertone, and indicating Gip and the red demon with my eyes, you haven't many things like that about, do you? None of ours. Probably brought it with you, said the shopman, also in an undertone and with a more dazzling smile than ever. Astonishing what people will carry about them unawares. And then to Gip, do you see anything you fancy here? There were many things that Gip fancied there. He turned to this astonishing tradesman with mingled confidence and respect. Is that a magic sword? he said. A magic toy sword. It neither bends, breaks, nor cuts the fingers. It renders the bearer invincible in a battle against any under eighteen. Half a crown and seven and sixpence, according to size. These panoplies on cards are for juvenile knights-errant, and very useful. Shield of safety, sandals of swiftness, helmet of invisibility. Oh, Dada! gasped Gip. I tried to find out what they cost, but the shopman did not heed me. He had got Gip now. He had got him away from my finger. He had embarked upon the exposition of all his confounded stock, and nothing was going to stop him. Presently I saw with a qualm of distrust and something very like jealousy 
that Gip had hold of this person's finger as usually he has hold of mine. No doubt the fellow was interesting, I thought, and had interestingly faked a lot of stuff. Really good fake stuff. Still, I wandered after them, saying very little, but keeping an eye on this prestidigital fellow. After all, Gip was enjoying it, and no doubt when the time came to go we should be able to go quite easily. It was a long, rambling place, that showroom, a gallery broken up by stands and stalls and pillars, with archways leading off to other departments, in which the queerest-looking assistants loafed and stared at one, and with perplexing mirrors and curtains. So perplexing, indeed, were these that I was presently unable to make out the door by which we had come. The shopman showed Gip magic trains that ran without steam or clockwork, just as you set the signals, and then some very, very valuable boxes of soldiers that all came alive directly when you took the lid and said, I myself haven't a very quick ear, and it was a tongue-twisting sound, but Gip, well, he has his mother's ear, and got it in no time. Bravo, said the shopman, putting the men back into the box unceremoniously and handing it to Gip. Now, said the shopman, and in a moment Gip had made them all alive again. You'll take that box, said the shopman. We'll take that box, said I, unless you charge its full value, in which case it would need a trust magnate. Dear heart, no, and the shopman swept the little men back again, shut the lid, waved the box in the air, and there it was in brown paper, tied up and with Gip's full name and address on the paper. The shopman laughed at my amazement. This is genuine magic, he said, the real thing. It's a little too genuine for my taste, I said again. After that he fell to showing Gip tricks, odd tricks, and still odder the way they were done. He explained them, he turned them inside out, and there was the dear little chap nodding his busy bit of a head in the sagest manner. I did not attend as well as I might. A presto, said the magic shopman, and then would come the clear, small, hey, presto, of the boy but I was distracted by other things. It was being borne in upon me just how tremendously rum this place was. It was, so to speak, inundated by a sense of rumness. There was something a little rum about the fixtures, even, about the ceiling, about the floor, about the casually distributed chairs. I had a queer feeling that whenever I wasn't looking at them straight, they went askew and moved about and played a noiseless puss in the corner behind my back and the cornice had a serpentine design with masks, masks altogether too expressive for proper plaster. Then, abruptly, my attention was caught by one of the odd-looking assistants. He was some way off and evidently unaware of my presence. I saw sort of a three-quarter length of him over a pile of toys and through an arch, and, you know, he was leaning against a pillar in an idle sort of way, doing the most horrid things with his features. The particular horrid thing he did was with his nose. He did it just as though he was idle and wanted to amuse himself. First of all, it was a short, blobby nose, and then suddenly he shot it out like a telescope, and then out it flew and became thinner and thinner until it was like a long, red, flexible whip, like a thing in a nightmare it was. He flourished it about and flung it forth as a fly-fisher flings his line. My instant thought was that Gip must not see him, 
I turned about, and there was Gip quite preoccupied with the shopman and thinking no evil. They were whispering together and looking at me. Gip was standing on a little stool, and the shopman was holding a sort of big drum in his hand. Hide and seek, Dada, cried Gip. You're it. And before I could do anything to prevent it, the shopman had clapped the big drum over him. I saw what was up directly. Take that off, I cried. This instant, you'll frighten the boy. Take it off. The shopman with the unequal ears did so without a word and held the big cylinder towards me to show its emptiness. And the little stool was vacant. In that instant, my boy had utterly disappeared. You know, perhaps, that sinister something that comes like a hand out of the unseen and grips your heart about. You know, it takes your common self away and leaves you tense and deliberate, neither slow nor hasty, neither angry nor afraid. And so it was with me. I came up to this grinning shopman and kicked his stool aside. Stop this folly, I said. Where is my boy? You see, he said, still displaying the drum's interior. There is no deception. I put my hand out to grip him, and he eluded me by a dexterous movement. I snatched again, and he turned from me and pushed open a door to escape. Stop, I said. And he laughed, receding. I leapt after him into utter darkness. Lord bless my heart, I didn't say you coming, sir. I was in Regent Street, and I had collided with a decent-looking working man, and a yard away, perhaps, and looking a little perplexed with himself, was Gip. There was some sort of apology, and then Gip had turned and come to me with a bright little smile, as though for a moment he had missed me. And he was carrying four parcels in his arm. He secured immediate possession of my finger. For the second I was rather at a loss. I stared round to see the door of the magic shop, and behold, it was not there. There was no door, no shop, nothing. Only the common pilaster between the shop where they sell the pictures and the window with the chicks. I did the only thing possible in that mental tumult. I walked straight into the curbstone and held up my umbrella for a cab. Ansoms, said Gip in a note of culminating exultation. I helped him in, recalled my address with an effort, and got in also. Something unusual proclaimed itself in my tailcoat pocket, and I felt and discovered a glass ball. With a petulant expression, I flung it into the street. Gip said nothing. For a space, neither of us spoke. Data, said Gip at last. That was a proper shop. I came round with that to the problem of just how the whole thing had seemed to him. He looked completely undamaged. So far, good. He was neither scared nor unhinged. He simply was tremendously satisfied with the afternoon's entertainment. And there in his arms were the four parcels. Confound it. What could be in them? Uh, I said, little boys can't go to shops like that every day. He received this with his usual stoicism, and for a moment I was sorry I was his father and not his mother, and so couldn't suddenly there, in our handsome, kiss him. After all, I thought the thing wasn't so very bad. But it was only when we opened the parcels that I really began to be reassured. Three of them contained boxes of soldiers, quite ordinary lead soldiers, but of so good a quality as to make Gip altogether forget that originally these parcels had been magic tricks of the only genuine sort. And the fourth contained a kitten a little living white kitten, 
in excellent health and appetite and temper. I saw this unpacking with a sort of provisional relief. I hung about in the nursery for quite an unconscionable time. That happened six months ago, and now I am beginning to believe it is all right. The kitten had only the magic natural to all kittens, and the soldiers seemed as steady a company as any colonel could desire. And Gip... Well, the intelligent parent will understand that I have to go cautiously with Gip. But I went so far as this one day. I said, how would you like your soldiers to come alive, Gip, and march about by themselves? Mine do, said Gip. I just have to say a word I know before I open the lid. Then they march about alone. Oh, quite, Dada. I shouldn't like them if they didn't do that. I displayed no unbecoming surprise, and since then I have taken occasion to drop in upon him once or twice, unannounced, when the soldiers were about. But so far I have never discovered them performing in anything like a magical manner. It's so difficult to tell. There's also a question of finance. I have an incurable habit of paying bills. I've been up and down Regent Street several times looking for that shop. I'm inclined to think indeed that in that matter honor is satisfied, and that since Gip's name and address are known to them, I may very well leave it to these people, whoever they may be, to send in their bill in their own time. And so this week we see, as we've seen before, that there can sometimes be a sinister side to that which we think of as fun. I mentioned before the stories this week that I wanted to talk a little bit more about the magic shop. Both of the stories today felt to me like they could have been Twilight Zone episodes. And if anyone knows Jordan Peele, or of course if he's listening, feel free to suggest these two stories to him as he's rebooting that series. As it happens, in 1964, the Alfred Hitchcock Hour aired an episode called The Magic Shop, and the story was very similar but with a different ending. Side note, the father in the story was played by a young Leslie Nielsen. One other note. The son's name of Gip may have been inspired by Wells' own son, who was named George Philip, or that was shortened to GP. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Stories of Your and Yours, and if you did, I'd love it if you spread the word and leave an iTunes review for me to read on the show. If you've got a story to submit, or if you have a request for a short story, send that in to syypodcast at gmail.com, or hit me up via the aforementioned social media handles. For a full list of music and sound effect credits, please visit syypodcast.libsyn.com slash blog. Now next week, we'll be featuring two more original stories submitted by listeners, and these stories will come from a perspective that, depending on your age, you may have forgotten. Until then, this has been Stories of Your and Yours. I've been Sean Ennis. Thanks for listening. See you next week.